0: Who are the happiest people in our society? I came across a study recently uh, from the Institute for Family Studies that was looking at happiness broken down on two broad categories with four subsections, marital status and whether or not you have children. And for both men and women, I think it was 18 to 55, the happiest people were those who were married and had children second happiest for both were those who were married without children. For women, it was basically a tie, more or less, between the least happy being those who were unmarried with children or unmarried without children. But for men, it was very clearly the least happy people were those who were unmarried and had children. And why is that the case? Well, I think it's because God designed us to be married and have children. And that's what we see laid out in Genesis chapter 2. you there in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 23 to 25. we we'll reference a few things as well in this passage. But we'll see here that when marriage is carried out as God designed it, it is an incredibly good thing. So look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now before we we think more carefully about God's view and purpose, Marriage, I want to take a little bit of time to think about how marriage is viewed in our culture today. I think increasingly in our culture, marriage is viewed as an evil, it's viewed as a negative. You have those who are fighting against the idea of marriage and the nuclear family, in part because they're trying to restructure society around a contrary vision, a kind of broader cultural uh, Marxist kind of perspective in which the family is a detriment to how they're trying to re-engineer society. And so they think marriage is an evil. And some say marriage is an evil because it's just too restrictive, that people weren't meant to be monogamous, that the idea that sexual relations should only be inside of marriage is, is too restrictive. And so in sexual liberation, we now don't necessarily need marriage. Increasingly, I've actually found people who claim to be conservative who are trying to argue that for men to really find happiness and joy, they need to not pursue marriage, that marriage is a hindrance to men and that men are the most manly they can be, the most happy they can be if they don't tie themselves down in marriage. For those who still think there's some value in marriage, I think for most of them, they think marriage is an expression of love. That it's an opportunity for you to say how much you really love the other person. And so when you go from living together to actually being married, the whole point of the wedding ceremony is now to say, this is how much I really love the other person. It's a way for me to, to demonstrate that. And because marriage is an expression of love, anyone who loves each other should be able to get married. Which is why marriage has been redefined now to say, as long as two people love each other, they can be married and marriage connected to that as a means of personal happiness that i enter into a marriage because i believe i will be happy in this marriage and if i'm not happy what do i do well i get out of it because marriage is about making me more happy and more satisfied and at best marriage is simply a contract it's a legal Status in which both of you commit at some level to uh, commit yourself to each other in a contract. What does the Bible have to say about marriage? Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to see that marriage is ordained by God. I'm going to take some time in this passage to talk about the nature of marriage. What What is a marriage? And then we'll take some time to talk about the purpose of marriage. Why, why did God design marriage? We have to see, first of all, that he is the one who designed it. Government didn't set up marriage. People didn't set up marriage. If you were here last week, you saw that Adam didn't come to God and say, hey, I'm kind of lonely. Could I get someone to to be a partner for me? That God, before Adam ever had any idea that he had a problem, said, this is not good. And then set up to create a woman that would be a helpful, uh, suitable helper for him. And so God is the one who established marriage, which is why Jesus in Matthew 19, 6 can say, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That anytime a couple is getting married, a man and a woman are being married, God is the one who seals that marriage. He is the one who joins them together. And since he created marriage, he gets to define it. He gets to tell us what it is and what it is for. And so what is a marriage? Well, it's beyond a simple civil contract. It is a covenant in Scripture. Uh, We see this hinted at in verse 23, I mentioned last week, the phrase, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, is language that's used to describe uh, covenants in other passages in Scripture. And so I think we, we see that kind of hinted at here as well. The language of leaving and, and uh, being joined is also used to describe commitments and covenants in scripture. Proverbs 2.17 describes a woman who forgets the covenant of her God and leaves the companion of her youth. Malachi 2.14 says, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so scripture describes the, the relationship between a man and the woman in marriage as that of a covenant. It is a solemn commitment. It is promises and obligations that are undertaken by both parties. They are committing to each other and saying, I will do this and I will do this. And that's really what the marriage vows are. The marriage vows are these expressions of these kinds of commitments to one another. As well, the nature of marriage is heterosexual, which is the kind of thing that several years ago we wouldn't need to specify. Yet in our day, we have to make clear this was God's design, that he made man and woman to be able to become one flesh. And so there's a kind of natural fittingness in which a man and a woman come to each other. And and people sometimes will say things like, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, and yet he did. In Matthew 19, 4, he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus did talk about marriage. And he said, God made them specifically this way, male and female. And so a man is joined to his wife as one flesh, which leads us to a third truth that we see, that marriage in God's design is monogamous. It is two. The two become one flesh, which is what Jesus actually says there. Not three or four or some unspecified number, but it is two. Adam and Eve. Now, perhaps you've wondered, well, what about other marriages we see in Scripture? Like David, who had lots of different wives, or Solomon, who had so many wives, I don't even know if it's possible he could have known all of them. It seems crazy to think how many wives he had. Or even Jacob, or others in Scripture that have multiple wives. And I think what we have to say is, well, when God set it up, what did he set up? Here we find, before sin enters the world, we find his design, his ideal, his pattern for marriage is to become one. And certainly as we go through scripture, as we see these different kinds of marriages in which there's multiple wives involved, it never ends up very well. It's very clear that it just creates heartache and and, and conflict and grief and sorrow. And so the ideal that God set up is very clearly, Two become one. And the nature of this relationship is one of strong commitment to one another. That language in verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife or cling to his wife. This is something that's very important in order for the marriage to work. There is a forsaking, in some sense, of the relationship between the the child and the parents. And to be clear, I mentioned this last week, I don't think this passage would tell us the man leaves his father and his mother, but the wife stays in that family. The point is, the man leaves it because the wife obviously is going to leave. In that culture, the wife goes and often lives with the husband's family. And so leaving doesn't necessarily mean not in the same location because actually they often would have lived even in the same house. And yet there's a clear separation that now the relationship this man has that's most significant is not his parents, but it is his wife. And so what does this look like? I found helpful some suggestions that Wayne Mack in his book, Strengthening Your Marriage, gives in talking about what does it mean to leave your parents? First, he says this, it means that you establish an adult relationship with them. That now you're no longer responding as a parent to a child, a child who must obey his parents. But instead, it's a new kind of relationship. Yes, certainly you still honor your father and mother. But now you are interacting with them not as a child, but as a son. Secondly, it means that you must be more concerned about your spouse's ideas, opinions, and practices than those of your parents. You now look at what they think and what they want as more significant. You're not constantly saying, well, my mom wants this or my dad thinks this. The more important to you is what does my husband say? What does my wife say? What will make her happy? What does he want? Third, it means that you must not be slavishly dependent on your parents for affection, approval, assistance, and counsel. That if you're constantly going back to your parents to be able to to get the kind of emotional relationship that you need, to get the kind of spiritual relationship you need, to get support financially, that you're not in a good marriage. There needs to be a separation in that, in that relationship. Fourth, it means that you must stop trying to change your spouse simply because your parents do not like him or her the way he or she is. Because what your parents thinks about your spouse no longer matters to you as much as it once did. Certainly before you're married, it's a good time to get that input. Once you're married, there's now a separation. You are leaving father and mother. You're forming your own independent family unit, which means finally, you must make the husband and wife relationship your priority human relationship. There is no more significant human relationship that you have in this world. Your spouse now is the most significant person to you. So some thoughts for us to to try to live out this reality of marriage. If I can encourage you as a parent, one of the things then that you are trying to raise your children to do is to be ready to leave you, to be ready to move out from being under your care and provision, to no longer rely on you, but to prepare them to instead move on into this relationship with a husband or wife. If you have children in the home as well, you should be cultivating your relationship with your spouse so that once the children leave, the marriage is still healthy. The marriage and family is not centered on the children, but centered in the relationship between the husband and wife. And then if you have children who are married, that you need not to interfere. I heard one person point out how interesting it is that even our secular government sets up laws that recognize the most significant relationship is between a husband and a wife because as a spouse, you are not required to testify against your husband or your wife. Because understand, we don't want to do anything to create disharmony and disunity within the marriage. Yet, what do parents sometimes do? Try to get the husband or wife to testify about all the evils against their spouse they come in and try to turn them against each other, try to get them on their side against their spouse. Are they consistently pushing them back? Consistently encouraging your son to pursue that relationship with his wife, encouraging your daughter to pursue that relationship with her husband. Because that's the most significant human relationship that they have. Finally, the nature of marriage is that it is a union of intimate unity. Again, in verse 24, they shall become one flesh. It is exclusive. These two become one. And that is certainly manifested with sexual activity. That sexual activity within a marriage is not just a momentary act but it is the beginning of an enduring union between husband and wife that is meant to continue to further and deepen the unity that they have with one another. And that's because this relationship is not merely sexual. It's not just one flesh in a physical sense, but it is one flesh as well in an emotional, a relational, a spiritual sense. But there is a closeness, a unity that is meant to be manifested in this relationship. And that means that sexual activity doesn't make sense outside of this kind of relationship. Scripture says any kind of sexual relationship, in a sense, makes you one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about this. 1 Corinthians 6, it mentions having sexual relationship with a prostitute and the two become one flesh. The point there is that's not the way that God designed this to happen. It's not meant to happen on a purely physical level. So to a relationship in which there is a full commitment to each other, a true oneness between husband and wife. This as well is why Scripture would tell us that believers should never marry unbelievers. How could you possibly have the kind of close intimate relationship you're designed to have with an unbelieving spouse? Because the things that matter most to you in this world are not shared by that person. And so if there's no reason for you to marry that person, then certainly there'd be no reason for you to be dating that person. And God's design in this is a kind of intimate unity. And scripture tells us that we are not to be bound together with unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, we're only to marry in the Lord. As well, this is a reminder that in the marriage relationship, the focus is no longer on you and your wants and your needs, but us and our wants and our needs. Because you are one. You're meant to share these things together. That's the nature of marriage we find described in this passage. What about the purposes of marriage? Why did God create marriage? I think one reason we see... In verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. That one function of marriage is companionship. Certainly there are other avenues and other ways in which we can have companionship in this world. Because I think in general it's not good for any person to be alone. We were made to be in community. certainly one of the great ways in which we find that joy and satisfaction, that kind of relationship is with our spouse. And then secondly, the joy that comes from the one flesh relationship. The joy that comes from the sexual union, from that emotional union, from that spiritual union. There is a kind of joy that we have within marriage. That's one of the reasons God gave marriage to us, so that we would find joy in his good gift. A third purpose for marriage is procreation. When verse 18, it says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. I mentioned this last week. What is the wife in a part to be a helper for? Well, what was the command that God had given to Adam? Look back at chapter one and verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam could not do that by himself. And so God designed marriage in order to allow mankind to be fruitful to have children, to help fill the earth so they could carry out his dominion mandate. Because marriage and family is the best way to carry that out. It's at the heart of God's plan for this world. Now marriage happens without children. They're married before children ever come into the mix. And so children's not the sole purpose of marriage. And certainly the Lord in his providence may not allow certain couples to have children. As I heard it put, children are expected in marriage, even if they are not necessary for marriage. We certainly should be, as a general rule, striving for offspring and for children. Because that's why God gave us marriage. Fourth purpose for marriage is, I think, holiness. The, the the wife here is called to be a helper that is suitable for the man and so god gave adam eve so that adam could obey god and so what's one of the reasons why we get married so we might better carry out god's purpose for purposes for us in this world so that we might become more like Jesus Christ, that we might grow in our obedience and in our holiness so that we could do what God intends for us to do. A fifth purpose for marriage is the public good. Verse 24 tells us, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Now, when that happens, what's, what's evident? people know, the father and mother are aware that marriage is not meant to be some private thing. In a sense, you should never doubt whether or not someone is married. It's not meant to be a question. It's meant to be clear. This man and this woman have committed themselves to each other. And they have done so in a way that is evident to everyone. And so marriage is not meant to be we kind of went away by ourselves and made this commitment to each other. Marriage is done in the sight of others. Because society has an interest in this. That we are forming families. Families in which there is a commitment from husband to wife, from wife to husband, and from husband and, and father and mother to children. And so there's meant to be public accountability. That's why. In the weddings, you do your vows before witnesses. That those who are in attendance are hearing you say to your wife or to your husband, that I'm committing myself to you in this way. That I take you to be my lawfully wedded spouse. That I'm committing myself to you in sickness and in health. That we're observing these things with the expectation that we will hold you accountable for them. Certainly it's not required, but it makes sense that we have visible reminders such as rings that help people to realize, I am in this kind of a relationship. I'm in this kind of commitment. And it provides clarity about the relationship. You wonder, whose children are these? To whom do they belong? I mentioned that the most unhappy or the least happy men in society are those who are unmarried and have children. And that's because that inevitably creates added frustrations and hardships. That when there are children, there's meant to be a clear recognition. This is the father. This is the mother. And sin, yes, disrupts those things. And God often, in his grace and in his mercy, works even through sinful kinds of relationships in which those things maybe aren't as clear as they might otherwise be. Sometimes death disrupts things. Sometimes sinful actions disrupt things. But in the ideal setting, children are meant to know, this is my father, this is my mother, and we are together in this family. And that because this also protects us against injustice. One of the things we see in scripture is that the husband is meant to be held accountable for his commitment to his wife and accountable for his commitment to his family. And so if you came across a wife who was not being cared for, who did not have food or clothing, or children who did not have the things that they needed, the expectation is you would go to the husband and you would go to the father and you would say, why are you failing? You are responsible for this. And you are to be held accountable for your failure to do this. It's interesting to me. Occasionally, you'll you'll see people, in discussing the issue of of abortion and pro life in our culture, say things like, "Hey, I'd be happy if we outlaw abortion as long as we say that the fathers have to be responsible for the children." And I hope as Christians we'd always say, "I take that deal every time," because I think fathers have to be responsible for their children. That it is sinful for them, to abandon them, to neglect them that they are accountable in this relationship. And sometimes people don't pursue marriage because they don't want that accountability. They don't want the hassle of actually going through extra steps to end this relationship. They want people to to enter it easily and to leave it easily. And when that happens, it does not mean there are no consequences. It simply means the consequences are borne by other people that you're saying, I don't want to have to worry about this. I'm going to force it all on you. And so marriage is meant to be a public statement in which all recognize and all hold each other accountable for these commitments. And ultimately, marriage is designed to glorify God and point to the gospel. Verse 25, it's interesting. The man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. And what does that mean? Well, often, naked in Scripture is tied in with shame, and usually it's tied in as well with guilt. That is, you, you have sinned, you have done something wrong, and therefore, when it becomes clear, when the cover is removed, that now there is shame. The point here is there was no sin. There was no guilt. There was complete transparency and completely perfect relationship between husband and wife. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, in the earlier part of this section, that in many ways what we see here in paradise is a picture of what we're going to see in the future. So in the future, are we going to go back to the state in which everyone's now naked and not ashamed? And the answer we find already addressed in Scripture, no, we, we have robes. Why is that the case? Well, I think one reason is because the nakedness is always only designed to be within that one flesh kind of relationship. It was fine for Adam and Eve to be in this relationship, but they're the only two people around. And so their op- the complete openness was perfect because they were in this one flesh relationship. And once more humanity comes into play, I think they would have no longer been in that state, even if they hadn't sinned. Perhaps as well, we're in Rose for all eternity as a reminder to us that we will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because what happens right after this chapter? Certainly, anyone who's reading along in chapter two and sees that phrase, the man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed would understand that's not the case anymore. And why is that not the case? Because of sin. That that perfect guiltless state, that unashamed state, that state in which there were no barriers and no divisions, the perfect openness and transparency was disrupted because of sin. Sin entered into creation. And what did God do? He clothed them with animal skin. Which I think is probably a picture, the sacrifice that is needed to deal with our sin and our guilt. And what we find out when we come to the New Testament is that when God designed marriage, he did not just design it for marriage. He had a greater vision in mind. If you would, go to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. Verse 31. Ephesians five thirty one. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That it was not clear to those in the Old Testament exactly what marriage was designed to point to. That there certainly were hints. And the New Testament becomes clear. God designed marriage as a picture for us to understand Christ's sacrificial love for his bride, the church. and The church's loving submission to her husband, Christ. It was always intended to point to that. There is a deep mystery here that is revealed to us that marriage is ultimately not about marriage. It is ultimately a picture of Christ and the church. And his sacrificial love in which he lays down his life, in order to deal with her sin. So let me conclude with some encouragements for us in light of what we see in God's purpose and the nature of marriage and his design. The first, a reminder to us that when those are, people are attacking the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, they're not just attacking creation. They're also attacking marriage and the family. And so if we begin to say, well, maybe we can give this up. We've given up marriage and the family. So these attacks are significant. And these attacks are something we must continue to fight against. Secondly, understand God is right when he says it is not good for man to be alone. So plan to get married. Yes, there may be times in which, in God's purposes and designs, he has given someone the gift of singleness. But that is the rare exception rather than the rule. And so if you are not yet married, you should be striving toward that. You should be trying to become the kind of godly man or godly woman that would make a godly husband or godly wife. You should be trying to raise your children who are not yet married toward that purpose and that end. Third, be fruitful. That childlessness is not better than having children. It's a blessing of God to be able to have children, and so let's value them Let's plan for them. Let's long for them. Even while being content, if in God's providence, he has chosen not to give them to us. Certainly, the fact that God in his goodness may decide not to give us that gift should never cause us to despise the gift. We should always rejoice for others who are able to experience it. Fourth, be thankful for the gift of marriage if you are married, thank God for his good gift to you. That perhaps as you have thought about this, you're no longer married because you have lost your spouse. And if I could encourage you, even as you might grieve and sorrow, that one of the things you could do is to give thanks to God that he allowed you to enjoy his good gift while he did. And you, like Job, can say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But perhaps you would say, I'm not in a good marriage. I'm not in the marriage now, and I'm thankful in many ways because I got out of a bad marriage, an ungodly marriage, a marriage that did not seek to honor Christ. And to you and to all of us, I would say, let us rejoice at what Christ has done For the church. In Ephesians five, look at verse twenty five. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be holy and blameless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good gift of marriage. We thank you that you designed it well. And we pray that we would seek to pursue your purposes and your designs in a world that has lost its understanding of what you have made, that we would shine as lights, showing the world around us the goodness of your purposes and ultimately the incredible gift you gave to us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.